Jackie Von Salm, and I have a PhD in organic chemistry. My focus has always been on natural products and finding medicines from nature. You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, Today, I am really, really stoked to be uh, talking to someone who is as interested in ecology and chemistry as I am, uh, Dr. Jackie Von Somme. Thanks so much, Jackie, for being willing to come on the podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited. Yeah, totally. So to, you know, briefly introduce you... um, um, one reason that your name is kind of floating around in the cannabis space a lot right now is because you were recently um, a, named a recipient of the El Soli Award for this year, um, which is really, really exciting. Congratulations for that. Thank you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it was pretty awesome <laughs> to be, just to be part of. So it was awesome. Yeah, totally. There's like, I think, five people in total that received that that award. Yeah. Um, I know I had the opportunity to interview um, Justin Fischetic, um last year, um, and now you. So now I'm like, well, now I got to find the other three and <laughs> get them all. Um, but that's really exciting. Um, do you mind explaining a little bit about um, why you received that award, and then we can use that as a jump-off point to get into all sorts of things? Yeah. So I was uh, working for a company here in Florida called AltMed. Their mm-hmm. Move and they had a lot of focus on R&D and the research and really the chemistry aspects of cannabis and trying to develop unique products from there. Um, but in the process, when I got hired, since I already had experience in doing a lot of detailed chemical analysis of different complex mixtures and different organisms, mm-hmm. it just seemed perfect for me to take on sort of the cannabis world and all the different genetics and phenotypes and strains and all the other things that are coming out of the industry, (laughs) um, they all have their own unique chemistry. So we were really interested in figuring out what the difference was between some of the different strains and maybe how that might correlate back to the medical side as well. Um, But initially, the focus was really just trying to understand the complexity. Um, That was kind of Mm -hmm. step one. So we wanted to try and do our own analysis. I mean, every environment can change it. You know, even if you mentioned you're interested in ecology, it just chemical ecology is so variable. So we took all of the different terpenes and cannabinoids from different strains and compared them to each other to show how certain flower might be similar to others and how it might be different. And in the process, a lot of times the major terpenes that most people really emphasize or talk about Mm -hmm. didn't really seem to describe a lot of the data or the similarity that we were really seeing. So we dug into sort of the trenches of the details and tried to find exactly which maybe minor terpenes or smaller Mm -hmm. compounds that aren't always focused on are really differentiating the different strains. Um, And that's when we discovered alpha-thugene, which Mm -hmm. is a really basic terpene. It's one of the first ones that comes off on the GC, which just means that Mm -hmm. it's really volatile and wants to fly away, Um, which also means it's really sensitive to any kind of post-processing and that sort of thing as well. So this terpene was is known for a long time from frankincense, and it's actually described mm-hmm. um, quite a few different uh, strain or strain species of frankincense. Um, 
that cannabis terminology always comes back. Right, yeah. <laughs> Bleeding into the brain. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so different species of frankincense were actually um, described from alpha-thugene and even alpha and beta-pinene. So that was how I had known it. And I'd never really seen it talked about in cannabis much. It would, it would pop mm -hmm. up occasionally, even in, you know, Justin Fischetic's, um, some of his publications. It was always very minor, almost never mm -hmm. even... I mean, it was never talked about for sure. It was just kind of included in the table, but no one ever paid attention right. to it. So then when I started to notice that third-party testing labs that no one tests for it, oh, yeah. that yeah. really, you know, kind of sparked my interest even more was, okay, well, maybe something that can help us describe different strains and different plants is actually not even being paid attention to. So that was what we did. Yeah, and did you notice... Uh something that's been on my mind for a long time and and Justin and I talked about this too but um there's an interesting dynamic in the cannabis testing world right now where cannabis testing labs are essentially you know they they create their analyte lists based on available reference standard mixes basically right and so that's what drives a lot of that bias it seems like where there may be these chemical compounds that are present um that are being ignored simply because they're not included in these basic mixes that a lot of the the labs use, um, yeah. which is a fascinating problem to think about. Yeah, and that, I think when I tried to look up a standard for it in any sort of mixture, it was only available in more essence, fragrance, or food and those mm -hmm. types of mixtures. Yeah. It was never in any cannabis terpenes or any sort of generic terpene mixtures. It was mm -hmm. only once I started looking more in the culinary or perfume world that I started to even find it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. They're definitely, I mean, we're definitely restricted to what's available to us. Mm -hmm. And I think that obviously the wild variability and flux of the industry in general and politically and everything else has always changed stuff too. So it, we're only as good as our tests, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And it just goes to show how much we uh, still don't know that we only, uh, there was a good analogy I think Kevin Spellman used when I interviewed him about, um, you know, it's like a person trying to find their keys and they're, they're only looking in the, in the spotlight, but their keys are, you know, just outside the, the light. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's very much like that. And is alpha thugene, is it, a compound that will oxidize into thujone because I know that's a very popular compound. Right. So yeah, thujone from wormwood is the one that most people usually think mm -hmm. about. Um, and I've actually seen some cannabis testing facilities that will test for alpha and beta thujone, but really, they, yeah, but, but not thujine. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's I I'm I sure I'm sure it would oxidize into that form. I mean, it's just uh, basically the double bond goes into mm -hmm. an epoxide. So I wouldn't. I could see it doing that. Um, we've never detected through Joan in anything we've seen. I haven't even seen it really pop up anywhere. So yeah, I'm not I mean, sure how reactive that um, that is to oxidation. But right, and if through yeah. already in low concentrations, and then you've got right. you know an imperfect um, conversion to other things, then it'd be harder to pick up. Well, yeah. and and what were the patterns that you noticed? So you you found this unique terpene that. <laughs> Uh, cannabis labs aren't testing for how frequently did you notice and in what kind of concentrations and um, what sort of correlations did you notice between that and I don't know did you notice any correlations with phenotypes or anything like that so we did we ended up having um, a pretty nice cluster of certain strains that are grow that actually had more significant amounts of this terpene versus everything else which usually had almost zero like it was mm -hmm. negligible um, I would say 
quantification wise, the most we ever saw was um, from a couple of our high terpenaline strains, which are mm-hmm. really well known from anything that's a genetic version of like a Jack Herrera or something yeah. similar. Um, they usually are high in terpenaline. And um, we did seem to notice a little bit of a correlation there, but it wasn't it wasn't perfect because we also noticed it in some of our other strains. But it was only ever as high in abundance as alpha pinene, so it was still never mm, okay. it was still never in abundant levels of caryophyllene or myrcene or any of those sure. really. Um, but it was still enough that in some of the very high abundances, it was the peak sizes and every mm-hmm. detection was almost equivalent to alpha pinene, which I mean that's still. That's significant at that point when yeah. it's not just this tiny little blip on the radar. Um, exactly, yeah. And if people are focusing on alpha-pinene, then that shows that they should also be focusing on alpha-thugene as well. Right. And we so we did end up having that nice sort of cluster of some of the strains having alpha-thugene. Um, but we need to do more, <laughs> obviously. I yeah. think that's always the, the case with good data, right, is um, we had tested originally 28 different cultivars, um, but... Mm-hmm. Some of those even have phenotypes within each cultivar because most right. of our facility grew from seeds and that ah. seed variability <laughs> will just, I mean, yep. I don't think a lot of people really focus or pay attention on the fact that if I plant 10 seeds, I could get 10 different chemotypes, yeah. <laughs> you know, and yep. I could have variable chemistry. So um, there's a yeah, lot more I, strains we need to test. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. The The seed variability thing is something that I, I talk a lot about because it's an example of the... Um, I mean, there are a lot of issues with the term strain and how it's used, but right. one thing that bothers me is that, you know, even just using the term cultivar, that they'll apply the same cultivar name to plants that are grown from seed. And it really confuses things, especially for someone like you or me that might be doing testing and looking at chemistry and trying to understand, you know, what's going on. And you're like, okay, well, these names, I can't rely on those. So what can I rely on? You know, yeah. <laughs> it becomes this big, I know, where's big the puzzle. consistency? Where can I? Yeah. And, you know, it's, I get different sorts of uh, feedback from people in the industry that, you know, some folks like still really want to hang on to that idea of strain names and, and cultivar names and everything, um, which is fine, I think, from a brand name perspective. But uh, from a research standpoint, it's, it can be really frustrating. I don't know, um, in the CBD world, in the hemp world, something I was involved in a couple of years ago, there was a, it's been labeled the the great seed debacle of Oregon of 2018. Um, but uh, basically these F2 generation seeds started floating around in Oregon and a lot of farmers planted them. And one of these farms had me uh, go out and do sampling and just to see what the variability of the chemical profiles were for the plants in their field. So fun project, went around, harvested, you know, a whole bunch of samples started running them all and I was like, oh no, you've got like high THC, high CBD, one to ones, three to ones, yeah. two to ones, four to ones, like, oh no. All over the place. It was like super fascinating as a scientist, but like heartbreaking to have to, you know, tell the farms that. Yeah. But um, you you just touched on something that I was, I was going to ask you as a follow-up. So what are some questions that you have now about um, the chemical variability of cannabis plants based on the research that you've done? So I would say some of my biggest questions are more of the sort of nerdy ecologist that Mm -hmm. I am sometimes. And that's more on, I still can't believe that there's only one species of cannabis, which Mm. blows my mind. (laughs) Interesting, yeah. So I, but being able to trace and track and try to Mm -hmm. figure out how it's evolved with humans, obviously, 
um, is, is tough, but I think that for me, it definitely shows we should embrace the diversity though. Mm -hmm. I I really don't want to lose that aspect of the diversity in the industry. I know it's difficult to standardize and I know as a scientist, I should not like that answer. (laughs) I should be like, no, (laughs) we need to make this all the same. But I think that that's why it would be great if sort of you had kind of that more strict scientific medical side, but then Mm -hmm. you still have um, a little bit of the slightly more relaxed with diversity option because it, it, the variability that we even see among patients with how different it it needs to be personalized. All of it needs to be personalized and there's not going to be a one plant fits all just like in pharma. There's no one pill fits all right. There's no one drug that's going to solve the world's problems. And I think um, that's what it's really raised for me is trying to understand not only the variability of the flower and the plants, but every step of the process after that point in manufacturing and production mm-hmm. extraction, everything changes your chemical profile yeah. along the way. I don't know how you'll really keep track of that, unfortunately, but if you can show that most of the chemistry that you're extracting and moving forward isn't considered harmful, I don't know that that matters. Like I would think that as long yeah. as you're proving um, that you're not, you don't have, you know, excessive solvents or pesticides or other things right. that hurt someone, then I would think it would be okay. But um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a tough thing. So the synergy too, I mean, that's always a huge question, right? The whole right. effect and <laughs> how do you even study yeah. some of that? Yeah. Yeah. All of that. I mean, those are all still questions. I think everybody still has. Right. And <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, one of the yeah. things that like research like yours highlights that gets me really, really excited is just how much we don't know. Uh, yeah. It shows just how much work there is to do and how many opportunities there are present. Um, you know, to investigate all of this stuff. And it's like this, this is one reason why I like being a teacher, because I like getting people excited about the fact that there's a lot we don't know, and we need people to like get on board to ask questions and explore and and do this work, because it's easy, especially when you, it, it's particularly bad in like the cannabis and the natural product space in general, these like memes that get repeated over and over and over again about what we know about plants and their chemistry and what they do to the body. And gives this impression that we must have it all figured out and know so much. And, you know, we really don't, we may do the best with the limited amount of information we have available, but um, there is just, yeah, so much unknown. And I I really like, you know, what you're pointing out about, um, I do think there should be a focus on the fact that we have a good sense of the safety profile of cannabis, Mm -hmm. which should then make it should (laughs) <laughs> then make it easier um, to study. Of yeah. course, we're still still working our way our way there. But um, and how does <clears throat> so we're we're talking about the ecology side. I know you're also interested in trying to understand how chemical compounds are influencing the environment, influencing microbiology and plants, that sort of things. You've done so much interesting work on things like algae and coral and all these other. Other things. So I do want to make sure that we branch out a little bit and we can loop cannabis in um, yeah. throughout the conversation. But this concept of chemical ecology um, is something that I think um, goes widely underappreciated because we like to keep disciplines separate and we think of them separately. Um, but chemical ecology is this this area of science that really shows where the these barriers are extremely fuzzy and break down and everything's interconnected. So. Um, 
I guess maybe we'll start it on the cannabis side and then we can really spin off. But on cannabis itself, what are some um, ecological aspects of the chemistry of the plant that you're interested in exploring further that you think might be at play? And then let's talk a little bit about some of your other research that you've looked at about how, you know, you've, you've discovered all sorts of different compounds and other, um, other organisms that um, one influence the environment, that sort of thing, but also are um, important targets for possible drug development in the future. So um, I want to get into all of that as well. Yeah. I mean, you said it perfectly that chemical ecology is one of those few fields that can help you recognize the connection between everything. It's I to try and distinguish it separately from anywhere is just so silly to me because I'm it's, I, I joke, but I I always kind of make this statement and my um, business partner and other people always pick on me for it, but it's, (laughs) it's a good one and I like it. So I just, I, I continue saying it, but it's that any sort of drug discovery that you're doing is really chemical ecology of the human body Yeah, and everything. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, anything from, so with cannabis specifically, there's not a lot of research done on if you're, if you have an entire indoor facility and you're looking at having you know, a few dozen plants on one tray, how is one genetic variant of the plant being ne- directly next to another genetic variant of the plant ah. affecting the chemistry? And that's mm-hmm. called um, allelopathy. And yeah. that's, a, that's a big deal. And when you mentioned some of the marine stuff and other things I've done, that's a huge aspect of coral reef research right now and how algae affects coral and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And, um, so even just how different plants being near each other in environment can change things. Um, obviously humidity, temperature, all of those aspects. I mean, any sort of stress you might be putting on the plant too. Yeah. There's a lot of companies around the country that, you know, from time to time are going to have some kind of either microbial or pest situation happening. Right. And and I can tell you in Florida, it's Florida's (laughs) just, a cesspool of just all the things, right? Because it's yeah. just a swamp. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> but you're always going to have some of that stuff popping up. And when the plant is stressed, it can produce different chemistry as well. Just mm. like if it's comfortable yep. versus stressed and all these different things. And um, it's going to be hard uh, to really know what's being affected where, but the cannabis industry is in such a unique situation, in my opinion, where, so at our facility, we went from seed all the way to sale. We had our own dispensaries, mm-hmm. we grew, we did every aspect of processing and production, and we had our own in-house lab, which was unique at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you have this sort of closed system, I mean, we had some yeah. variables, but the variables aren't going to be the same as they would be if it was in nature. I mean, right. chemical ecology is hard because trying to control or yeah. understand nature exactly. is just kind of pointless most of the time so you have to do what you can but with cannabis i mean if you have the opportunity of going through the whole life cycle and the whole stages of these plants then you could do some really unique and interesting analysis to be able to try and come up with conclusions on what is being altered where and what Mm -hmm. changes might be happening and i think that as the cannabis industry evolves i hope they start to really look at some of those things because i mean even curing right? Yeah. Like what's the definition of a good cure? Everybody's got their own opinion, but I can tell you that the tea and tobacco industries, they all have a very strict definition if depending Mm -hmm. on the company of how they cure 
the different tea leaves or tobacco leaves or anything else. And that's what leads to the chemistry. It's very precise most of the time. So I, yeah, there's so much opportunity and all of that, in my opinion, is considered chemical ecology. It's, I mean, yeah, you're, trying to, you're trying to assess how the chemistry is being altered by the environment or other factors. And um, yeah, so I, I hope that cannabis starts to <laughs> embrace yeah. some of those things and, and recognize their opportunity that they have to do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. And something that's been on my mind for a long time, like when I was in grad school, one of the things that I was interested in and studied was um, um, the sort of um, different things going on or in the microorganisms in the rhizospheres of plants. Yeah. And something that I've been wondering about cannabis that have no time to look into and no money to pay for the time to look into, but one day <laughs> yeah. it would be cool to look into is how, um, different, uh, chemotypes of cannabis, um, influence the diversity of microorganisms in that rhizosphere, because, you know, the, the exudates and things of the roots and other, other things, these chemicals, uh, triterpenes, all these different things going on, you know, they influence what is going to be attracted or not um, to the roots. Also, another thing I wonder is that this concept of using mycorrhizal fungi in um, cannabis agriculture is interesting to me because that was something I studied in grad school. And I'm interested to know how um, in outdoor fields, how cannabis and particularly different varieties of cannabis influence some of the um, native mycology of the soil. Yeah. Um, because cannabis is one of these plants that can benefit from mycorrhizal associations, but it, it doesn't necessarily need them very much. And um, something that some of my research um, highlighted for me is that a lot of times um, when you have plants that don't necessarily need those associations, a lot of times you get a uh, quite a steep drop in diversity in the soil over time because yes. people don't realize spores are always moving um, in yeah. soil and stuff. Um, so that's a, a sort of a chemical ecology question that I have that I'd really like to see explored. Yeah. I mean, even so I, my son, he's about eight years old, just turned eight last month. Yeah. And he's, we just learned all about, um, earthworms and soil oh, yes. and all of that stuff. Right. And yeah. it, it makes you wonder. Yeah. Because you have a lot of these, you have greenhouses that are more secluded than others. You have fully open, mm -hmm more natural types of grows outside. And then you have fully only indoor facilities where each individual plant is in its own separate pot. Mm -hmm. So they're not even able to have any sort of communication between the soil or anything like that. So yeah. it's definitely interesting to see how it would affect that entire sort of ecosystem that we typically associate with farming too. Right. In general. Um, and yeah, the back, <laughs> the bacterial aspect or fungal, all of it, the microorganisms, I, that one is so understudied for yes, all of yeah. this that it's wild. They, um, I've talked to a few different people about it just because of that whole, the concept of microbiome, it's even becoming mm -hmm. big in the human body and everywhere. And for me, from chemical ecology, especially in the marine world, there's been quite a few different sponges and tunicates yep. and other organisms where they're discovering the actual thing producing the compound you found is not the organism itself. It's mm -hmm. a symbiotic relationship with a microorganism, right? Exactly. So, yeah. And even just in the last like 10 or 15 years, there were some really big um, reviews and publications coming out about the 
bacterial terpenome and like this whole thing about mm, the terpenes and yeah. you know, a lot of people associate terpenes with microorganisms a lot of the time but i mean the very first compound i ever discovered from a fungus was a terpene so yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, they're everywhere and i mean they're the largest class of natural products so if exactly. you're seeing you're seeing pretty consistent similar terpenes kind of across the board with a lot of plants and um, different organisms so it yeah, I don't know. Well, <laughs> I would and, love and, to be able to do it more too. <laughs> yeah, and and what highlights what you're saying is the fact that uh, one one way, and there's a lot of debate over whether this is um, an appropriate way to produce natural products, but one way is through bioreactors and using right. bacteria and fungi, depending on what compound you're trying to produce, um, to produce those things for you. And that's happening with cannabinoids now, and it's been happening with terpenes yeah. for a while. Um, so yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a significant effect. And yeah, it's something that, I mean, there's so little, there's so one, there's so little ecological research on cannabis that's been done period. And then when you start looking into stuff like that, you know, um, rhizosphere stuff and, um, there was, there was some paper that came out recently about endophytes and cannabis. I can't remember. I need to go back and look. But there, you know, there's a couple, but really, yeah. really not many. Um, so that would be fascinating to know if some of these minor constituents of cannabis that we identify, uh, maybe they're not you know, necessarily being produced by the plant. Maybe some of them are being produced by bacteria, fungi yeah, we living did, on the plant. We did a huge, huge screening project when I was during my undergraduate research and then it even carried over into graduate a little bit, but it was all on just tens of thousands of different endophytes, especially mm -hmm. from, um, in Florida, we have a lot of mangroves. And so it was, mangroves are unique kind of being in both yeah. the water and land sort of ecosystem. Yeah. So, um, we did some endophyte studies there and, um, from other organisms as well, but it's, it's amazing just again, how different I could go, here in Tampa, maybe, and try to um, assess some of the endophytes on mangroves, mm -hmm. and then just go an hour south, back closer to my hometown in Sarasota and Bradenton area, and take something from down there and get completely different fungi. Because yeah. again, it's you never know what you're going to culture either, right? We can only culture a yep. certain percentage, a really small percentage. <laughs> so um, you, you, yeah. the biodiversity was just amazing, which it's. That's awesome because today's actually a biodiversity day, apparently. Is it? Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just thought about that when I said the word. I was like, oh, wait, that's today. How appropriate. Yeah. yeah. So it's, and it's true. There's tons of, I mean, bacteria, fungi, and then you have actinomycetes, which always blew my yes. mind. Yes. They're kind of yeah. in between and nobody really knows what's going on there. I know. All we know is that they maybe give soil the nice smell that we like. Yeah. We're like, <laughs> oh, maybe that, yeah, was it geosmin or whatever the compound is that comes from the soil when it rains? And yeah. Like, oh, yeah. that's the smell of rain. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's, there's just stuff everywhere. And I would love to see more research being done like that in the cannabis industry. But a, mm -hmm. a lot of that is more academic, right? Yeah, Not a exactly. lot of that is stuff that tends to be a for-profit or industrial model. And so until some of the more legal aspects of cannabis are lifted, mm -hmm. a lot of universities and academics aren't even able to really look at it. I know, so it's, yeah. It's tough when that's, that's a very academic endeavor. Um, but yeah, I, I would spend the rest of my life doing it. <laughs> I know. Yeah, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's one of those situations where like, gosh, if you could find the funding, I mean, yeah, it's just limitless research mm -hmm. projects you could do. And especially where you are. I mean, 
you know, you and I are similar in that you're in a biodiversity hotspot of the United States right. there in Florida, which a lot of people don't realize. Um, yeah. But Florida, I have a good friend of mine um, who's a ornithologist and herpetologist that um, oh, nice. I don't know if he's still in Florida, but Florida is like his favorite state in the entire country, you know, <laughs> uh, for all, you know all of that. But the biodiversity hotspots there, and then the reason I moved to where I am in Southern Oregon initially was because of, this is a biodiversity hotspot too. So you've got three different oh, mountain nice. ranges coming together at the same place, and yeah. uh, just a lot of a lot of different ecosystems. Uh, their boundaries are all right here, so there's a lot of interesting things happening. Um, in this area. Um, and this brings me to um, sort of a, a deeper topic to talk about, which is natural product uh, research and drug development. Um, you know, I think something that a lot of people don't realize is, um, I think in my interview with Kevin Spellman, we talked about the statistic, but it's like um, around 6% of plant species have really been, you know, studied and, right. um, you know, researched and everything. And yet we're losing uh, species at such an alarming rate. Um, yeah. So one thing I wanted to ask you, have you run into any common misconceptions among the public around uh, what's involved in drug development and natural products research that we could touch on a little bit? Because I think it's something that a lot of people are disconnected from and it'd be good to kind of help them understand what that process looks like, you know, more realistically. Yeah. So it, it changes every year as different drugs are developed and come out mm -hmm. in pharmaceuticals in general. But um, there's a review done every year by uh, natural product reports where they show mm -hmm. you all of the different um, derivatives of natural products, whether they be synthetic or not. Mm -hmm. um, they also do actual natural products and they show you the percentage of drugs on the market that have either been inspired by a natural product or mm -hmm. are an actual natural product. Um, and it's the overwhelming majority. Of, yeah. I mean, it's it's we do have a lot of synthetic efforts over the last couple of decades for drug discovery, trying to come up with new chemistry, trying mm -hmm. to come up with all these models. But one, it's sort of, you know, that typical statement of like nature's kind of better than we are at a lot of things. Um, but yeah. but the other aspect of it is a lot of these compounds, they're biological compounds. They're, their purpose, ecological or whatever mm -hmm. purpose is actually to target some sort of biological receptor. So they, they're already ready to do those things. And so a lot of times, I think that's one of the reasons that natural products tend to work so well for drug development is these are already biological molecules that have the right, you know, stereochemistry, they have the right three-dimensionality, the right functionality to actually target your receptors and, and get the job done. Um, that being said, one of the biggest misconceptions and something a lot of natural products chemists probably don't want the world always to pay attention to is that Natural products degrade pretty quickly. They're in yeah, a real yeah. most of the time. It's rare to have a it's rare to have one that can handle a lot of manipulation without sort of just falling apart. I mean, even THC, right? THC is mm -hmm. not the natural product. <laughs> the yeah. acid form is the natural product, which yep. readily degrades upon any sort of heat. Um, and that's why the post-processing part of whether it be synthesis or other drug discovery is really necessary and I think we took a big hit in natural products after the antibiotics era, and especially mm -hmm. in the 90s, when yeah. they kind of decided, hey, we're not really making as much money as we want to off of this, so let's stop putting our efforts into natural products and start just screening a bunch of random synthetic analogs and kind of see what happens. 
um, that endeavor really hasn't led to a whole lot, unfortunately, yeah. in certain areas. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are other areas that it's helped quite a bit. You know, obviously, you've got hypertension and certain aspects of cancer research and other things where it's starting to help. But especially in the realm of infectious disease, mental health, a lot of these areas, we're not getting anywhere without natural products. And um, it, for the fact that we haven't had a lot of funding and research behind it for the last couple of decades is really hurting us because now, now we're seeing that with cannabis, yeah. we don't have the data we really need. We're, we're seeing yeah. it as psychedelics start to become a thing yeah. that we just don't have the information because we haven't been able to do the research or even look into it to know. And yeah, I think that natural products are a great way to start the process of drug discovery. I'm never yeah. going to pretend that, they will be the only thing we'd ever need from start to finish. I think you yep. need innovation and I think you need other, you know, research beyond that as well, but it's bridging mm -hmm. that gap. It's, it's, and it's balance. It's starting with maybe natural products or whatever else you have, and then figuring out a way to bring yep. it to the market. And it, it requires a lot of collaboration and people working together and dissemination or disintegration of ego a little bit sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think maybe a lot of that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so i think it's it's yeah but natural products i mean yeah you can look at those reports and you can see how many pharmaceuticals are actually derived from them and you'll be blown away yeah i think that's a that's an excellent point because i do think there is a misconception among the public in general that uh most of our modern pharmacopoeia is synthetic and right. uh and it's really not and um you know, touching on some of what you said, another thing I wanted to make sure to ask you about is um, you're the CSO for a company called Solera Biosciences. Yes. And yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that company and kind of what your mission is there. I know you're you're taking on projects trying to look at um, all sorts of different natural products, um, including psychedelics. Am I right about that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you yeah. mind speaking a little bit about, um, yeah, how did how did that company kind of come into existence and what are you trying to do there? Yeah. So uh, my co-founder and he's actually the CEO is uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Chris Witowski. And um, we both actually worked at AltMed in the cannabis industry together. But even before that, we actually did graduate school together in natural products. Um, and nice. we had focused a lot on infectious and neglected diseases. Um, we, we had done some testing in other areas as well, uh, but our big focus was um usually on neglected and tropical diseases mm -hmm. for a long time. And from there, and then through sort of the cannabis industry for the last few years together, um, we've had, we've been talking about starting our own company for, you know, a decade at this point. Yeah. And we knew that, especially when, when you're getting your PhD in natural products, you're recognizing a lot of the things I mentioned before, where you're, mm -hmm. you recognize that sort of lack of funding and lack of, um, innovation really happening in that realm, especially as pharmaceutical companies didn't really want have an interest as much in it. And we knew that there was a big gap. And there's also a huge gap between academics and industry in general. Yes, yes. You have academics coming up with all of these wonderful, amazing discoveries, and then industry kind of trying to do the same thing. And there's not good communication happening between mm -hmm. the two. And then you could have the next drug sitting on a shelf in a professor's office and he just has no way to even attempt to try and bring that to the public a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, so we felt like it was finally time to sort of take that leap, take the jump. Um, so we started Silera Bioscience and 
we our focus is going to be more on mental health and addiction as well mm-hmm. as um, neurocognitive disorders so alzheimer's dementia that sort of thing um, even but even anxiety ptsd and the focus is really going to be on more psychedelic type scaffolds mm-hmm. um, we are going to try and find ways to maybe try and reduce a little bit of the maybe hallucinogenic side or psychoactivity mm-hmm. see kind of how that works um we're also interested in the microdosing aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of focus happening on that right now, especially with there are a couple of clinical trials on psilocybin and psilocin mm-hmm. specifically right now. And it's all still very much that higher dose. You have to sit with a psychiatrist for yeah. six hours blindfolded and you can't do anything. And it's clinically it's expensive. It's yeah. And it's a yeah, big it's a whole so. process, a big to do. And there are going to be there are going to be patients who might benefit more from just sort of that minor slight like mm-hmm. microdosing regimen more than having that that really intense uh, moment, which that makes sense to me, especially for your uh, clinically non-treatable depression, which is mm-hmm. more of what their focus is. So I, I see that helping there. But if you're looking more into um, even tauopathies and Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and maybe some other addiction aspects, I think you're going to need maybe a little bit more of a, a yeah. regimented process. So that's our goal. <laughs> our hope yeah. is to try and um, look at a lot of those different things and see what we can do and um, really try to be, bring that natural products, chemistry and science aspect back to it and do all of the research that's necessary. And there's there's a lot of data that's needed to really try and bring these things to the world yeah. and to the market. And um, sometimes, you know, I would love to think that I could just start running around with a bag of mushrooms and throwing them to people and, you know, having a great day. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like I would, I would love that, but I don't, I also know that there are going to be people who maybe aren't quite on that level, whether it be ego wise or psychologically, or just mm-hmm. even who they know as who they are. Right. Right. That jump into that. And it's, it's too much. It's yeah, going to be, it's, it's going to be too much for some people. There's not, it's not a lot of, it's a little bit different in my opinion than cannabis sometimes with that. Absolutely. It's a very different, very different thing. So I really hope that people have learned a little bit from the cannabis industry yeah. to know that maybe this is something that needs a little bit more research behind it. But unfortunately I'm starting to see a lot of the same exact <laughs> investors and companies and cannabis. Oh people yeah. Oh my gosh. Starting yeah. to, you know, treat psychedelics like the next big thing and the, the marketing and advertising, it just blows my mind. So I, I, our hope is to really come at this from sort of that, that bridge that I mentioned between those mm-hmm. two worlds and trying to kind of help bring them together so that it benefits everybody. Our focus is always the patient. <laughs> we don't, yeah. really, I mean, it's not, and that was the same in cannabis. It was one of the mm-hmm. yep. most unique situations I've ever had in my life where I could develop a product and then go to the dispensaries and talk with patients about it, have mm-hmm. them try it, and then ha- have them tell me straight to my face how they felt about it. Like that just yeah. doesn't happen. Yep. And so I, through that process and through talking to a lot of people with different levels of PTSD and pain and trauma and addiction and other things, it it definitely gave me a new perspective on just how little is known about those things and just how much needs to be done about it. Um, yeah. You know, on a more personal level, I, I have a, a lot of family history with addiction and other things that I grew up in. So it was, mm-hmm. um, and my father actually has a rare form of dementia. So I, 
I have sort of my own personal reasons too to yeah. say, okay, it's it's time to stop sort of hiding this and sort of break that stigma and let us yeah. really research it and help people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and some of the the potential just from some of the um, research that does exist with psilocybin and ketamine and some of these other things. I have someone in my family with PTSD and treatment res- resistant depression that started. Um, uh, they went and had ketamine infusions um, back in January, and now they're on kind of like um, every week or two or so these kind of like low dose um, ketamine treatments. And that's done more for them than anything I've seen my, you know, is something that I've witnessed my entire life to see this person to try to find relief and, you know, try to not be haunted by these thoughts that are like playing over and over and over again in their heads and, um, and just see the change in behavior and demeanor and everything. And he, you know, he's still on, um, a low dose of an antidepressant as well. So it's okay. not just just ketamine, yeah. but the the introduction of the ketamine and um, what that's done it's just been remarkable um, yeah. how that's how that's affected his well being and gosh to go really deep you know we're talking about chemical ecology now you're talking about you know diving into the the ecology of our minds the ecology of our brains exactly. um, and navigating these these interconnected things you know you're, we're talking about you know things related to uh, the conceptualization of the self and the role yeah. of the ego and and all these different things, um, which I find super super fascinating. I uh, my when I was an undergraduate, I had this idea, and I think I was just a little too early, but I I wanted I was very interested in psychedelic uh, research and wanted to get into neuroscience, and so I started off studying psychology and philosophy with an idea I was going to go to medical school and be a psychiatrist, and then I got upset at that idea because I realized psychiatry isn't exactly what I thought it was. And yeah, it's one thing after, (laughs) no, yeah, it's it's like one thing after another, but it's something I've always been fascinated about this, uh, you know, this, the landscape of the mind and how it ties into mental health. My wife is a mental health therapist and something, so it's something that like is on the forefront of our minds a lot. And the promise of psychedelic therapies, whether they be with existing psychedelics or, with, uh, you know, maybe we call them refined psychedelics, you know, modified psychedelics. I mean, I remember, I don't remember how long ago it was. Maybe you remember when researchers were playing with LSD and making, um, an isomer or something that, um, wasn't hallucinogenic. They did. Yeah. They, um, they were actually had made a, the one I know about is a halogenated version. They were able to actually, um, so and actually, that's interesting because that shows really the importance of stereochemistry too. It's yes, not I wanted to people, yeah, recognize that LSD, there's two enantiomers, right? Mm-hmm. Everything has their enantiomers, which is right. that, that mirror image. And so yeah. um, one form of LSD is much more active than the other enantiomer. Um, the one where they actually completely reduced some of the hallucinogenic effects was a halogenated form. So they mm-hmm. actually did change the the structure a little bit for that one. But um, it, yeah, that that's a perfect example of you can have the perfect mirror image of something go from being LSD, which is, you know, wild. And then to yeah. suddenly just almost nothing. It's crazy. Yeah. And it's, it's something that um, I think we, we had a brief interaction on Instagram sometime relatively recently. I don't remember what it was. It was something that came out. I feel like it was in the cannabis industry that uh, some research that was pointing this out too, that, you know, just because you have a molecule that has the same 
chemical formula right. and you know and is structured the same if it's if you've got the left hand rather than the right hand exactly uh, yeah yeah it can I, make I a like huge that. huge difference I, I always like to make that comparison to people is you know you have your shoes, you have your right shoe and your left shoe. Sure. You could switch them. You could put the left mm -hmm. shoe on your foot, right foot, but you're probably not going to have a good right. day and you're going to have a lot of blisters <laughs> later. Like, so, I mean, that, that's kind of my best that's way when I, was, when I was teaching people is I was like, just think about it as if you had to switch shoes for the day and how uncomfortable it might be. Um, and that's the similar concept. And I mean, yeah, in cannabis, I was reading, I think it was a publication last year for cannabichromine CBC which um, they had shown in the receptors mm. they were looking at that one of the enantiomers had a um, very different binding affinity than the other, which I recognize it's more purely computational chemistry, which is still um, up and coming sort of industry. So it, but it still reminds you that that's a thing. And you mentioned ketamine. Mm -hmm. I mean, the reason that they sell esketamine is yeah. because it's just the S enantiomer, right? Because it's more yeah. active than the um, R enantiomer. So yeah. It's and there's there's compounds that are toxic as one enantiomer and the other's not. Um Gossipol is a compound from cotton and the oh. one enantiomer is toxic while the other isn't. So it's that yeah, then that's one of the reasons that the cannabis industry still needs a lot of work too. Right? <laughs> and, I, and all these industries do is because I mean anytime I see someone talk about terpenes, yeah, it blows my mind when um, I think on third-party testing, they'll always just write the word yes. and I'm like, yes. can be six different isomers. I'm like, yes, 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 I know. Compounds. Oh, and the limonene, that's what, it that's was, what it know. was. Yeah. Yes, that's what yeah. it was. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Cause you, we see on, on all these test reports, you just see limonene a lot. Yeah. And sometimes even with pinene, um, you just see pinene and it's like, well, <laughs> that doesn't, one? Yeah, it's like this can matter quite a lot. Yeah. Um, and I actually have gotten into a couple um, fun sort of DM messaging with mm -hmm. uh, Yogi Bear, uh, David Heldreth. Oh, yeah, there. yeah. <laughs> he and I love to just go on stereochemistry rants together. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, it's especially uh, limonene came up a lot. So I usually like to, if ever I see something about it, I'm always sending that over to him because it's, yeah, there's still just so much that's unknown. And that's, it's true with psychedelics too. The, fortunately, yeah. there's a decent amount of the the newer psychedelics that are getting attention that don't have quite the chemical complexity that you would see um, mm -hmm. when it comes to so like indoles like psilocybin and psilocin. There's not a whole mm -hmm. lot of stereochemistry at least going on there, so that's a little bit different. Where that gets interesting is okay, which receptors are they actually binding to? What's really happening? And, mm -hmm. um, understanding that, but you know, something like psilocybin has kind of that classic natural products issue of sort of falling apart when you look at it wrong. It's yeah. not very stable. So we really have to work on helping make these things more druggable, quote unquote. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. And I know, um, chemists who will go unnamed that have played around with, <laughs> um, psilocybin and psilocin and have tried to make extracts and, um, they have found that, you know, they weren't able to verify the chemistry of their extract on the tail end. So it was sort of like a blind faith. But what they told me is that when they, when they tried it, the, the effects were extremely different. They had a, an extreme, like, um, they just basically had like mucus pouring out of it, like everywhere in their body. And they still had an hallucinogenic reaction, but it wasn't quite as strong. And it was extremely prolonged, uh, compared to what they were expecting. And they were like, I don't know what, chemical this what has happened? become <laughs> exactly <laughs> but, uh, so what, 
what sort of minor tweak sometimes it's not even a major thing sometimes yeah. it gets to the smallest little tweak that suddenly it's like well yeah i mean look at look at dmt versus psilocybin or oh, serotonin yeah. you know and you see how similar those chemicals are and yet uh the way they uh, illicit effects is so profoundly different it is um, yeah i mean when you have all the methoxy and the acetylene mm -hmm. versions i mean there's tons of different um ones out there that what was it hamilton's pharmacopoeia even did a whole thing on, oh like, yeah all yeah all the different uh five meo here do i say yeah yeah i mean the nn dmt and yeah, yeah. yeah. so mm -hmm. i mean and all of those are just a, a tiny little functional group yep. <laughs> difference it's really nothing major i know and, the word makes it seem so different, you know, it when does. you talk about methoxy, yeah. it's like, oh, that's something very, you know, right? foreign and interesting. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's a very, very simple little it uh, tiny change. It's um, a simple change, but we're sensitive beings. Yeah. I mean, and chemically, physically, you know, emotionally, mentally, whatever, we have, we've sort of our fine tuned own little personal ecosystems and every little exactly. chemical signal, every little thing can really dramatically change what effect it has on your body and i mean that's one of the reasons that a lot of culinary people and even people in food industry will talk about how food is medicine and i mean mm -hmm. they're absolutely right there's yep. there's no reason that we should really treat pharmaceutical industries as any different than someone who's a nutritionist really trying yep. to help you you know better yourself health-wise because i mean there's been a lot of studies just in the last couple of years about the amount of money getting poured into the cancer industry it's just yeah. how little's really starting to come out of it. They're yeah. Kind of, it's a little bit, it's not, it's disproportionate. And yeah. they're yeah. starting to notice that lifestyle changes and maybe banning certain pesticides and banning <laughs> certain food additives and other things are actually helping a lot more than some of the pharmaceuticals. So everything's connected. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about moderation and making sure that we're taking care of our bodies and minds. Yeah. Exactly, not that they're separate yeah. necessarily. I don't. That's a whole yeah. philosophical conversation. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, and I've I've gotten into uh into discussions with with um with other people about the you know um the gut brain axis and all these other things. And oh yeah. The interconnectedness of uh, mental health and diet and everything. It's um it is. It's all. It's all inter. It's all interconnected and it's humbling, mm -hmm. um which you know is is important. I think you know when people really dive into all of this and realize how interconnected it is and how sensitive we are um it it definitely causes one to pause and think a little more and strive to be a little more mindful which is never a, a bad idea um, no and i just have to hope that a lot of even what's going on right now in the world mm -hmm. sort of has helped i know it's it's probably not gonna be super great for some um right especially from maybe a mental health and addiction and other yeah, yeah. points. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there are going to be others that do get that chance to really look inward and start mm -hmm. to, I know a lot more people who are meditating more regularly and yeah, yeah. more time to do those things when they're not so busy. And I mean, in my personal opinion, busyness is just as much of an addiction as just about mm -hmm. anything else. Yeah. Especially yeah. our culture has become thoroughly addicted to being productive and busy all the time. And it's, I think that it'll, I hope that it helps subside that a little bit and helps sort of, yeah, that mindfulness and that inward sort of thinking and it's, but it's hard to do, especially if you're yeah. somebody who's gone your whole life without ever even being talked to about that. Yeah, exactly. Like your whole life, you've just been told this is the worst thing ever and you should never talk about it or do it. And you're now you're 55. 
like what yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's amazing so i i don't know it's a pretty unique time to be alive though so i am excited it is <laughs> i am i am too yeah it's you have to look on the optimistic side right and and think about sure yes there's gonna always be issues but that's life i mean survival is part of living and there's yes. always gonna be issues there's always gonna be hiccups but at the end of the day we live in a pretty unique place in the universe and we, there's a lot of cool stuff to be learned and discovered and i don't know i'm usually i'm usually like disgustingly optimistic person though people get mad at me for it, so. it depends on it depends on the day for me i can yeah. oscillate between both poles i can be very optimistic and Whatever extremely pessimistic yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. i i agree it's it's in a really exciting time to be alive and it seems like humanity itself is like on the verge of kind of um piecing together a lot of um, the puzzle as far as our situation here. It, something that I, um, I've i hinted at before, I have another podcast that I'm working on for a year or two from now um, that goes beyond cannabis because I always like talking about all these other things besides cannabis. But um, it's a, you know, it's basically a pursuit of, you know, let's say you're an alien and you've just shown up on this planet and you don't know anything and you're just kind of like, well, what's my situation? What's going on? And what do I do next? You know, uh, sort of thing. Uh, you know, we kind of really need to take that kind of a, a critical approach to, to where we're at just as a society, individually, within our families, just like what's going on? What's the best way to proceed forward? You know, how, you know, how do we get our ducks in a row and, and really it's about that mindfulness. How do we mindfully step forward into the yeah. future? Um, and all of these topics, I think, are critical pieces of that. Thinking about mental health, uh, chemistry, ecology, uh, philosophy, all these these different things, and trying to get a holistic picture of um, what our situation as as humans, you know, is. But um, I wanted to ask you. I know we're we're getting short on time, so I want to make sure I have a have one or two kind of like fun questions I want to ask you that uh, <laughs> I want to make sure we have time for. So, I know that you're um, really into like Japanese culture. Is that uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Um, so, one question I wanted to ask you is: Do you have a favorite anime? Yeah. So I'm. I do, and it's uh, Code Geass. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen. I'm not it, familiar with that one. No. It's, it's one of the shorter ones. So you obviously have your super long, ridiculous mm -hmm. oh, ones yes. like you know, Naruto and Bleach and all these other ones yes, that yeah. go on forever and never want to end. <laughs> um, but no, this is actually a shorter one. So it, I think, I'm trying to remember. I think there are only like 54, maybe total episodes or so. Oh, it, okay. Yeah. It, um, it wasn't a ton. It was like a kind of a two season sort of blip, if I remember right. And that might even be more. It might be less than that. I need to go back and watch it. I've seen it, I think, twice, but. Um, that was one of my favorite ones and that one has sort of that like pseudo aristocracy kind of thing going on like mm. they always like to bring in great britain and uk kind of vibes yeah. sometimes and it has sort mm -hmm. of that but it, it's very much a sort of rich versus poor kind of battle sort of interaction and it's got and anything that has to deal with sort of that that class system and mm -hmm. um that sort of vibe I usually enjoy just because a lot of people don't like to recognize just how stuck in that we still are sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. But that's, that's a pretty good one. I, I definitely recommend that one. Um, yeah. I'll have to check that out. Than, uh, 
I would say for visuals, though, if you just want a really good visual anime, I love Count of Monte Cristo. Hmm. The, the like animation they use in that is really wild. You can't watch too many episodes because it kind of just starts to like, it's, it's sort of almost trippy looking. So you have yeah, to like overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> visually a little bit too stimulating sometimes. But visually, I, I like that one a lot, too. So nice. I do. Yeah. So I, I want to do Japan in like kind of a few different stages. I would say this, this first stage was really me going out of my element, which I'm not a big fan of super huge metropolitan city kind of areas. But um, I went with my younger sister who thought she really wanted to move to a big city. So I, I took her with me as more of like a let's check out Tokyo kind of thing. And so we were there. Um, we stayed in Shinjuku. Um, and that's sort of their like pseudo red light district, which is interesting. <laughs> um, but yeah, and it was great. I mean, Tokyo is huge. It's massive. And I think that there's so much you can do just in that area that we had to both kind of get out of our element and out of our shell a little bit and just decide, okay, even though this isn't really our vibe, we like nature, we like that sort of stuff. We can we can find all these cool things. So we just did crazy Japanese stuff. I mean, we just wanted to find the weirdest stuff. So, I mean, we did some really typical um, tourism kind of things. And like we went to, the, there's like this big robot cafe place you can go to that does these crazy videos. Like we just did some typical stuff. And then um, Yakitori Alley is really neat. That was one of the best spots for sure for some food. But one of the things I would say I took out of it, their national parks were really pretty. Like we went to a couple of the different sort of botanical garden park kind of areas, but we did the Mario Kart sort of racing around the city. That was awesome. That was great. We went to an owl cafe. That was one of my other favorite things. Um, the owl cafes did force you to be so quiet and so sort of just like centered and mellow just to be around all these owls and not stir them up. So that was really neat. And then the last one, this is all just in Tokyo though. The last one was... Um, if you go to any of their sort of, I would equate it to almost like a mall here. If you, there was one that we went to and I hate it because I don't remember the name, but in the last bottom floor and basement, I would say it was probably equivalent. Just these huge, almost like farmer's market kind of style. Like if I, we could have probably just eaten there every day if we wanted to, and they just sell tons of different kinds of foods, all really unique stuff. And that was really fun. Um, I liked I just like food, though, in general, so that was really nice. Um, that, I would say, were probably my top three highlights of, of Tokyo. Um, but my favorite was when we went out of it to the country. So we finally were like, okay, we've had enough of city stuff. Um, we went out to a zoo. I'm pretty obsessed with red pandas. So we went out to a, a zoo and saw some of those. And then we um, we went and stayed at a, one of their old-fashioned um, ryokans, the old-fashioned hotel-type um by Mount Fuji and we stayed right yeah we stayed right on um Lake Kawaguchi and it was um just I don't know it's such a neat environment and I miss bathhouses like why is that not a thing I don't know. <laughs> I wish those were more of a thing here um and yeah, that was gorgeous. I mean, that was beautiful going into more of the mountains and a little bit out. Um, but that's actually all we did on that trip because now my next trips, which are the places I've really always wanted to go, which is Kyoto and Osaka and uh, even Nagano has a really nice uh, 
I really want to see the the Japanese macaques, the the monkeys in the hot springs. Those will be some of my future trips. So I only have some Tokyo and Mount Fuji sort of references now, but <laughs> I took Japanese for about six semesters in college. So oh, cool. I was finally able to try and like, you know, attempt some of that again. Yeah, and not, yeah. <laughs> not just having <laughs> totally go to waste, but we were there for almost two weeks. And I'd say maybe it wasn't until like the last couple of days, I finally was like, oh yeah, I know it. I remember all this stuff now. Which is, <laughs> now that we have to leave, I'll read it in the airport. Yeah, which their subway <laughs> system is wild in Tokyo. The subways are crazy to try and keep track of. So um, I was surprised by the lack of English around. So I, I had to be kind of mm. thrown into it pretty quick. I was like, oh, wait, yeah. I, think I think I recognize that symbol. What does that mean? So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, was, it was really fun, though. I, I'll definitely go back once we're, you know, allowed to really travel again. <laughs> But, right. Um, yeah. 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 I'm excited. There's lots of places I want to go, though. I was was hoping this year to actually reach. Um, so I went to Antarctica years ago mm -hmm. for yeah. research. And um, when I went and did that trip, I was actually only 21 when I did that. And I, oh, wow. I remember, yeah, I remember saying to myself, OK, not many people get to reach this continent mm -hmm. and I'm young. So I told myself I'm going to reach all seven before I'm 30. Yeah. And Japan and we went through Beijing and then to Japan. And so that was my Asia continent, which was my mm -hmm. sixth. So I was hoping before my birthday this year, which my birthday is actually on Sunday. Oh, um, early happy birthday. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Um, I was hoping to travel. So I already had a trip planned to Africa as my last continent. Mm -hmm. So I already had a trip planned. And then obviously all this stuff hit. So I didn't, yeah. I didn't quite get to reach that seventh one, but I'll get there. Yeah, you get there before, <laughs> before 31 or 32. You get right, there yeah. ASAP. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not worried about the age restriction anymore, but I had hoped. I had hoped. You know, I was like, oh, I can do it. It shouldn't be that hard, but it's hard to really travel much when you're in grad school and all these other yes. things, too. So, and I oh, have yeah. a son, obviously, and other stuff. So, it, um, I'm still, I'm still holding out, though. I'll, I'll you'll, get there. You'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You'll figure yeah. it out. Well, and, um, I, I definitely will let you go in just a second, but I have oh, one more okay. thing, one more thing I want to ask you about uh, related to some of that research. So this compound, let me make sure I get it right. Is it darwinolide? Is yeah. a compound that you worked with? Um, were you responsible for naming that compound or was it already named before you discovered it where you discovered it? No. Um, luckily, I had a professor that was uh, very open to my ridiculousness. Nice. And nice. Because <laughs> um, actually, the terpenes I had discovered from a coral before Darwinolide were from a location called Shag Rocks down near uh, in the South Shetland Islands. And I was like, well, they're terpenes and it's from an area called Shag Rocks. So I'm going to call them shagging. Yeah, right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so now there's actually a, my first publication was two. <laughs> uh, so, so then when uh, Darwinolide came along, so uh, the Silera co-founder, Chris, actually, and I were, he had isolated different compounds from a sponge from Antarctica as well. And that one, he had crystallized into a vial, but it was right when he was graduating. Hmm. He basically came up to me and said, hey, I think this might be new, but I don't know, and I don't have time to do it. So he just kind of handed it to me, and I was like, what? Who does that? So I... I, and it ended up being enough material for me to get all the data I needed on it. And um, it's actually rare 
nowadays to get good crystal structures even of something that hasn't been discovered before. Mm -hmm. so luckily, we were able to get a good crystal structure too and solidify the stereochemistry and everything. But um, it's funny because it's not really because of Darwin, like evolution, mm -hmm. um, but it just worked out that that was in the name because the type of sponge comes from a family of sponges called um, Darwinellidae. Ah, okay. And it's um, considered a, it's a diterpene. Um, and there were already other tr uh, compounds sort of similar that were called membranolides. So um, I had decided, okay, well, this one, it technically was different. And there were some other issues happening with like artifacts and things in that other class of compounds. So I was like, okay, well, this one deserves its own name. So let's just go with... Um, Let's go with the family sponge name since it's so close to Darwin anyways. It seems to work right. out. So then we went with uh, Darwinolide and yeah, it, that that thing blew up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's it's so cool when uh, situations like that come about. I mean, one, obviously it's a memorable name, but it's cool knowing connected to, you know, the actual taxonomical structure of the organism too, um, yeah. just as... I'm sure other researchers will really appreciate that <laughs> just to keep track yeah. of it. So it was, yeah, that was a good one. And I actually still, that one still always stays on our radar um, just because it, it was infectious disease and it was a uh, MRSA biofilm. Mm, and I, that's but, right. Yeah. I think it was last year that some publications came out with CBD and some of the cannabinoids actually being pretty good mm -hmm. MRSA biofilm inhibitors. Um, and so I, that kind of re-sparked my interest sort mm -hmm. of in realm a little bit so we always we always try to keep some of those on our radar of okay well maybe something could come out of that i mean mm -hmm. everybody always likes to talk about um infectious diseases and antibiotics and other things being or not antibiotics um bacterial infections and other types of infections becoming issues for us mm -hmm. as we, you know grow in population and um they learn to adapt and evolve and gain resistance um so we always we always try to keep it in our thoughts because it's big pharma doesn't want to spend the money on antibiotics research anymore because it doesn't make them anything. So it's, yeah, we always try to, that's, that's definitely one of the things that as we get into this more biotech sort of realm and figure out projects, we're always like, Hmm, I wonder if yeah. maybe infectious disease will be in our future too, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's um, yeah, it's, it's super, super exciting to see what happens. And I'm glad that there are, you know, people like yourself and others that I've talked to that are trying to find ways to take it upon themselves to um, be able to do some of this work that needs to be done independently when the funding's not there. Right. Um, that's that's so huge. And um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. One hope that I have for the cannabis industry and, you know, talking about all this investment money coming into psychedelics and stuff too, my hope is that maybe some piece of all of this money floating around is going to make its way into the hands of some people that can actually do some really interesting things with it and, and, so. <laughs> and push some things forward. Yeah. I get very nervous. I've had my own run-ins with investors and stuff that I'm like, uh, <laughs> leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we've been, I mean, we've been pretty particular ourselves and luckily, you know, between Chris and I and our knowledge and sort of yeah. just expertise, especially scientifically, but, um, we've kind of learned what things we really want to focus on and where we, and what we're, our interests are and where we think the mm -hmm. world can benefit the most. And so we're pretty particular whenever we've met up with anyone about really recognizing what they want out of it. Yeah. Because yeah. I think it's 
important that everyone's vision and everyone's philosophy is similar. Yeah. It might not always be perfect or identical, but at least it, it at least needs to mesh well or else it's just going to end up with, yeah, bad taste in your mouth. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, can fingers be a, crossed, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It can be a recipe for resentment when it goes wrong. Right. Um, but yeah, I look forward to seeing what Solera um, does in the future and... Um, yeah, we'll um, we'll be keeping in touch. I uh, I expect to to see really cool things um, come out of out of your work and and the group that you're working with. And um, in the future, if anything ever comes up, um, you know, new stuff that you want to talk about, let me know. I'm always happy to to have you back on and get into these kinds of discussions again. I know we could talk about. There's so many other questions that I'm like <laughs> I can't ask you because otherwise we're going to be talking for like two hours. <laughs> uh, and I know that's unfair to you, but I like, <laughs> I <know. laughs> yeah, I'm always, I'm always game to keep talking about all of it. I have, especially even on the chemical ecology and other sides, like it's, it's rare that, um, someone else even really has that understanding or that passion for it because mm -hmm. it's just not emphasized a lot. Um, yeah. and yeah. And cannabis, man, the amount of questions that everything I've done and they always, that's sort of the cliche of every time you ask a question, you, you know, have 20 more. Cannabis is like every time I ask one, I have like 300 more. So <laughs> it's just way more. So I, yeah, I'm the biggest thing right now for me is I'm still pretty obsessed with the idea of that entourage effect and mm -hmm. synergy. And I, I want to know what RSO is. Like, I just, <laughs> I just want to know what RSO is because <laughs> everybody's different and it's there's just, there's flavonoids, there's steroids, there's all these other compounds in there anomaly it's the schrodinger's cat of the of the cannabis <laughs> well and on that note what do you hope to actually see from the future of cannabis research in general other than you know the things that you just talked about um i really want to understand what its effects are on the immune system and inflammation that's probably my it's biggest huge. yeah that's one of my biggest things, but that's because that requires our understanding of immune system and inflammation in general. We still don't really understand that. Yeah. But how cannabis plays a role in that would be, um, would probably be the coolest one. Yeah. I'd totally. like to see that get somewhere. And it'll affect so many things. Yeah, sure. it will. Yeah, yeah. It'll affect a lot. So I would love to see that get further. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, uh, Jackie, I appreciate you being willing to uh, spend so much time with me. I know we went a little bit over um, what we expected, but um, as I knew we would, I've really yeah. enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but people know um, how to learn more about any of the work that you're doing. Um, if there's stuff you want to share about the El Soli Award, about Solera, um, or just your personal social media stuff, anything you want to share, just give you... Uh, a minute yeah. to you know okay yeah i mean uh my biggest thing right now is yeah if you want to follow instagram i'm terp queen phd as ridiculous as that is um and then it is yeah and so i that's my instagram handle but i have i don't actually really use twitter but i have an account which is j von psalm um so i usually publish as jacqueline von psalm if you're interested in any of past publications i've done book chapters i've done manuscripts i've done other things if you're interested especially in the marine chemical ecology and some of the drug discovery aspects of uh, my research and then our yeah the new company is silera bioscience which instagram is silera bioscience and we also have a linkedin profile now and 
as of hopefully next week, I'll have launched the website officially, which is silera.com. And um, we'll be able to start getting that, getting that out to the world because, uh, yeah, we finally got some, some of our provisional patents and other things in in the last couple of weeks. So we're able to, kind of, we're able to be a little bit more open about things. So. That's really, really exciting. Congratulations yeah. on that. That's, yeah. that's big. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. So that's, th those ones are all good places. And I'm, yeah, I'm usually pretty available. If you have questions or want to ask me anything, you can always reach out. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for tuning in and listening. If you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, you can go to CACpodcast.com. You can also find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just search for Curious About Cannabis and you should find us. And we're also on YouTube. You can subscribe to our channel and find uh, video clips from our interviews as well as other content that I add on there. And then if you want to support the show, you can consider becoming a patron on our Patreon at patreon.com slash curious about cannabis, where you'll get access to a members only podcast feed with early releases of episodes, extended cuts, exclusive episodes, all sorts of um, special content on there as a thank you for supporting us, as well as um, other things too, merch discounts, all sorts of stuff. So um if you feel inclined, check us out on patreon.com slash curious about cannabis helps us keep the advertisers and sponsors away so that we can have the conversations we want to have and not worry about being beholden to um, other companies. So thanks so much for tuning in. Stay curious and take it easy. Bye bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the curious about cannabis book available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises, a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.